This is an ABC podcast. Hi, and welcome to the History Listen. I'm Rebecca Huntley. I didn't believe in fairies as a child, but I loved reading stories about them. And there's that classic line that starts most fairy tales, but not always. Not all fairy tales happened once upon a time. This story happened to Robin and Makin last summer. Any day a fairy tale may come to you. And for generations of Australian children, at the beginning of the 20th century, it was artist Ida Rental Althwaite who made this happen. Ida was the belle of Melbourne society. Her illustrations featured in popular magazines of the day. Dame Nellie Melba and the Governor-General were among those who opened her exhibitions and her fairy book drawings captivated everybody. But by the middle of the century, Ida's fantasy world began to fade from view. Had tastes changed? Had children left Ida's fairies behind for a grittier reality? In today's program, producer Cathy Pryor examines and reimagines Ida's world. She begins by opening her own precious copy of one of Ida's most beloved books, The Little Green Road to Fairyland. Long, long ago, when I was six or seven, I thought the golden stars aglow were peepholes out of heaven. I thought the daisies white, my love and kisses new, and if I did not say goodnight, their eyes would fill with dew. That's Greta, my 11-year-old daughter, reading from a book that has been in my family for three generations. It was a present to my mum on her eighth birthday from her grandmother, my great-grandmother, whose inscription can still be read inside its front cover. Turn the page and the generations are passing now. My mum's adult handwriting notes the book belongs to me and my sister. Then a few years before she died, she added my daughter's name. This book belongs to Greta now. It's a precious book to me because of this continuum, but it wasn't the words that so captivated me as a child. It was the illustrations that I adored. Sure, these were fairies, but not the Disney cartoon kind. These were far more captivating than that. So I've hopped on a tram in Melbourne, the same city the artist called home, to find out more about Ida Rental Althwaite and the world she created on the page. My first stop is rare book dealer Doug Stewart and his shop in the leafy suburb of Armadale. So long ago, those golden summers seem, I wonder were they really so or just a sunlit dream? But still sometimes, hush, hush, I whisper low and listen for the fairy chimes as we did long ago. Hello. Hello, you must be Doug. Hi, I'm Cathy. Nice Nice to meet meet you. you, So, Doug, this is a a copy of a book that's been in my family for Mm. for a number of generations. What do you make of this edition and what story it tells about Ida's popularity? Well, first, I must say, you must have all been very good children because this book is in lovely condition. It's still got its dust jacket. One of the things about children's books is that often the little 
kids get their hands on them and you find them in quite a decrepit state, but this is in a lovely condition. Uh, you've brought in Little Green Road to Fairyland, which is one of her most loved of all publications. It was first published in London by ANC Black in 1922, and the edition that you've brought in is the first Australian edition of 1948. It's a book that was in print for at least 30 years. It's a bit of a keeper, this book. People are, you know, loath to let it go. What was so popular about this particular work, do you think, of, of Ida's and also Annie? Because it's Annie, her sister, who, who wrote the text to this book. I think these are really some of her finest illustrations. You have the fairies and the children in the Australian environment. You've got the, the charming story. While Fairy was speaking, the hills and the gully and creek were flooded with misty sunlight such as shines on a morning of frost and dew. Straight away, the bush became peopled with living creatures of wondrous shape and colour. Ida was tremendously influential during her lifetime and afterwards for creating an Australian version of the fairy tale and uh, creating an Australian identity for childhood in many ways. So many people today have got fond memories of growing up in a house where they found a book illustrated by Ida Rental Althwaite and they were entranced by it. It must be the little green door, Fairy thought, and ran up the steep mossy slope. But when Fairy reached the top of the hill, she saw a green mossy wall, and in it a little green mossy door, just big enough for a fairy or a very young child. Singer and songwriter Deborah Conway was one of those children who fell under Ida's spell. The Little Green Road to Fairyland was one of her favourite books and as Artistic Director of the Queensland Music Festival, she commissioned a musical adaptation in 2011. What really is so captivating for this book, and I think not just for children but for adults too, are these absolutely gorgeous watercolour plates. Read today, the story itself is clearly from another era. Among the fairies and brownies, there are fearsome cannibal imps who hold corroborees and a strangely touching scene when our fairy meets a child of the dream time. But while the words are florid, the illustrations draw you in. The opening title page is the, um, the little girl outside a door. And it's, it's such an evocative picture. Um, it's a little garden path and there are... There are trees that, that surround this secret gate. You could imagine, even though there's a kind of well-cleared path up to it, you could imagine that only the children know about it, not the adults. You can spin off into some quite beautiful, mysterious unknown, and that's enough to prick anyone's curiosity, let alone a small child's. My name is Juliette O'Connor and I'm the State Library of Victoria's Children's Research Librarian. Australian children's book publishing industry began in the 1840s. By the end of the 19th century, education was compulsory. So in the last third of the 19th century, the Australian children's book publishing industry really expanded. And then by the early 20th century, we're seeing a broader range of texts, so not so much educational material, moral fantasy. And fantasy is where Ida's um, illustrations really came to the fore. 
They must have been a very creative family, a musical family, a literary family. Her father, her mother and her sister would all write verse and short stories and Ida would illustrate them. So her talent began from the earliest stages of childhood. I think the fantasy side of things is like a, a form of escape for children. So the oppressions and um, austere periods of First World War depression in the 30s, parents were often looking for escapist literature for children. And you do see a real burgeoning of fairy style illustrations. She was a contemporary of May Gibbs, who had her own unique Australian version of that. but. Ida, her illustrations look at fantasy from a, a traditional European background. Australia was not alone in its love of fairies at the time. Rebecca Ann Dorosario, an expert in fairy tales from Monash University, explains. The term fairy tale actually originates in the 17th century with the French female authors, many of whom did write stories with fairies. But a lot of fairy tales, of course, don't have fairies in them. In the Victorian era, though, we did see fairies come back into the genre. And there has been a lot of argument about why this was so. Some of it is related to industrialisation, increased modernity, the idea of the fairies being linked to nature and the innate tension between the fairies and that more industrialised reality. The first fairy tales in Australia, what were they? Uh, the first fairy tales in Australia really start in the mid to late 1800s and they were very much on a path to establishing an Australian fairy tale tradition. You can see authors like Aether Westbury and Hume Cook would entitle their collections Australian Fairy Tale. Uh, most authors would include the bush or wattle or references like that to really establish that these are Australian fairy tales. Once more, Molly felt the soft guiding, and there before her was the little wattle grove where Father had taken them for a picnic on her last birthday. Then it was springtime, and all the wattles were decked with yellow blossom, dainty and very soft. So this is the first book that you've got here, Doug. So when was this first published? Molly's Bunyip was published in Melbourne in 1904. It was printed by a local printer and published by Robert Jolly, who is a friend of the family. And this book reproduces a manuscript. So it has all of the text reproducing the handwriting of her sister, Annie, and the illustrations of Ida. So these are black and white line drawings that she's done here. How old would she have been when she did this? Well, she would have drawn them when she was maybe 14 or 15, and the book was published when she was only 16 years old. Suddenly, plop went a platypus, and Molly gave a little shriek, and how she skipped with fright when she heard a chorus of laughter. And there, on a branch above her head, sat a row of laughing jackasses. It is interesting though, because we've got the kookaburras, we've got the billy tea, but then we also have uh, collecting blackberries. So there's the real European sensibility as well as the Australian. She was 
engaging with her art at a time when Australia was developing its own sense of national identity. But really, her books represent her. You know, she was a little girl in the Australian environment. She was growing up in Melbourne and spending the weekends up in the bush in the Dandenongs. So her books reflect her. It's just that she, she happened to be doing this at a time when Australia was emerging as a new nation after Federation. It was not only children's books that Ida illustrated. Her work appeared in magazines and theatre programs and she collaborated again with her sister Annie and composer Georgette Peterson on a series of songbooks that celebrated bush themes. Composer and flautist Joanna Selleck has been researching the songbooks. Starting with Australian Songs for Young and Old, they were an instant success. They were launched initially in 1907 at the Women's Work Exhibition, which was a showcase of women's art, music, craft. The sorts of comments in the press are that this bodes well for the future of Australia, that our women are so capable in all areas of, of their life as homemakers and also increasingly as artists in their own right. In the moon boat, Ida's depiction of flora and fauna is often quite exact or almost to the point of being botanically correct. And I think the combination of the three women, they actually did do something artistically that had integrity. Good morning, little friends and playmates. The songbooks were reprinted more than 50 times and were still being used by schools, on the radio and in households around Australia well into the 1960s. But it was a book released in 1916 that would make Ida Rental Althwaite famous both in Australia and abroad. Like many of Ida's books, Elves and Fairies was a family affair. Her sister Annie wrote the verse and her husband Grembury used his business connections to rustle up high-profile subscribers. The Sydney Morning Herald, April 17, 1917. The Sun, Sydney, April 14, 1917. There were numerous gatherings at Anthony Horton and Sons Fine Art Gallery yesterday afternoon when Lady Cullen opened the exhibition by Ida Rental Althwaite. I never make the littlest sound, I never sing or cooey, nor touch the fairies dancing ground among the grasses dewy. Of course you have wondered what the creator of all these fancies is like. She is little and dark, with bright, quick eyes and a manner that makes you understand why the fairies have stayed with these her. These lovely drawings would help to inculcate a love for the animals, birds, reptiles and insects of Australian And forest that if you look hard enough, you will find a cunning brownie swinging in every cobweb. And hear the noise of fairy wings, so tiny if I listen. And that the moon is a golden boat that can be sailed in by the fortunate few who know how to steer through the archipelago of stars. Well, Elves and Fairies is a really remarkable book. If you haven't seen it physically, it's worth taking a look. Her books prior to that are flimsy little paper-bound books. Elves and Fairies is something different. It's huge. It's about 40 centimetres tall. It's in beautiful blue cloth with a gilt illustration on the cover. The illustrations have been printed on special art paper, which have then been tipped in, so they're almost like photographically mounted within the book, and each of them has got a delicate tissue guard to protect the artwork. 
And what this does is it elevates the children's book out of the realm of juvenilia into the realm of the fine art publication. Elves and Fairies in 1916 is when we really see one of the early full-colour plated books being produced in Australia. It created a huge buzz around her work. And if you look at the list of subscribers, which is printed uh, in the book, you find a litany of the greatest social, artistic, cultural figures in Australian society at the time. You've got governors, you've got Dame Lily Melby, you've got singers and writers and collectors. And this was unusual because these are children's, children's illustrations. You know, these are not Arthur Streetons and Tom Roberts. From our London art correspondent, the Argus, Melbourne, July the 10th, 1920. Mrs Ida Rental Outhwaite's exhibitions of elves and fairies at the Fine Art Society's rooms is open in Bond Street. Society and Other Sinners, June 4, 1920. An exhibition of her watercolours in the big town recently was quite successful and one of the paintings was purchased by the Queen. Archibald Cahoon, art critic, The Herald, Melbourne, October 29, 1923. In the exhibition of pen drawings and watercolours by Ida Rentoul Althwaite, which opened at the Decoration Galleries this afternoon, there is evidence of expert manipulation and a certain daintiness of conception. Mrs Althwaite is a skilled little lady with both brush and pencil, and she finds she has a decided inherited flair for the original and artistic. Table Talk, Melbourne, April 7, 1921. After Elves and Fairies, Ida illustrated a number of other books and more exhibitions followed. But the Depression saw the taste for luxury publishing dwindle, and by the 1930s there was a sense that Ida's star was beginning to lose its lustre. Her final exhibition was held in Melbourne in 1933. So how was this skilled little lady with both brush and pencil perceived by the wider art world? I decided to ask an expert, Anita Calloway from Sydney University, who has an interesting thesis about how Ida's work and early 20th century feminism collide. If we're talking about traditional art history, textbook art history, Ida is, and I'm going to call her Ida if you don't mind, is afforded very little space. She's not mentioned at all. And that's because she's classified as an illustrator, not an artist. Um, the art world, if we're talking about, say, the turn of the 19th into the 20th century and the early 20th century, art was a profession that was really a closed shop for male artists who painted those wonderful bush landscapes. So, you know, full of blue skies and golden pastures dotted with sheep and, and so on, and, you know, purple hills in the hazy distance. Women really had to be somewhat devious in order to maintain a professional career. So illustration, commercial art, was something that most high artists, you know, didn't consider very important. So this was a field that was open to women. You mentioned commercial art there. Mm. Ida was, was known for her children's book illustrating, but she also did a lot of commercial work as well. She did. And these advertisements were for things like laundry soap and, and knitting wool and so on. But there were even advertisements to advertise things such as motor cars and international oil corporations. So this is a beautiful colour production advertising the products produced by Ackman's Furnishing Company in Fitzroy. It's 
a cumulative rhyme. So uh, it begins, this is the home furnished throughout by Ackmans. This is the dear little girl, Sophia, who lives in the home furnished throughout by Ackmans. At the back, a special notice. Also tell mother you have been invited to see the tables, chairs, cots and other things we have for children. So a bit of push, push marketing for the children to pass on to their parents. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, clearly there it, it was more than just simply addressing a market. I get a sense that there was almost a pride in applying the artwork of notable children's book illustrators of the time to advertising. As Australia moved towards the outbreak of World War II, tastes in children's books had already begun to shift. Interviewed after the war, Ida reportedly said that the war stopped the taste for fairies in parents anyhow, and the fairies fled, appalled at the atom bomb. The war also brought personal sorrow for Ida. Her husband had died on the eve of its outbreak in 1938, and her two sons were killed in action, leaving just two daughters, Wendy and Anne. Wendy's daughters sadly have no memories of their granny-o. Ida visited London where they live just the once before she died. But they have put me in touch with a cousin, Ros Pern, who in the 1950s visited her great-aunt Ida each Tuesday after school. You must be careful. Hello, Ros. How are you? I'm fine. Do come here. Thank you so much for having me here. Oh, no. Since I got your phone call or your email, I've just been uh, in a frenzy of nostalgia and thinking about Aunt Ida and all the times. It's been wonderful. I recall I loved going round to Aunt Ida's. She was very frail. I thought she had asthma, but I gather from the family she actually had emphysema. She was quite rattly, but often we would walk uh, about 10 minutes to the botanical gardens. I suppose subconsciously I was seeing the gardens through the eyes of Aunt Ida. I remember a couple of times I snuck onto the garden beds to look at something that she'd pointed out. And I was a very law-abiding child and I was terrified a gardener would come along and chase me with a rake, but she didn't seem to care. I do remember the fun of walking through the autumn leaves and kicking them. And if we found any particular beautiful autumn leaves, we'd take them home. And the other thing which I just thought was wonderful was when we passed flowers on our walk, that had fallen to the ground on the footpath, instead of leaving them there to be stomped by some uncaring person, we would pick them up and we would take them back to Aunt Ida's and put them in bowls of water. I don't remember her actually painting at all, but she did do me two paintings and they were both fairies sort of swinging on ropes, which were really vines. In the forest, there was a little fairy. She was the very one Robin and Macon saw among the daisies. She flew one sunny day from fairyland to waken a bank of wild violets. Her wings were shimmery, frail, and almost too beautiful to see. Often that is why we cannot see fairy things. They are too beautiful, and we are too blind. Although Ida's output never again reached the dizzying heights of the early 1900s, 
she continued to work on occasional projects. The last book she illustrated was Legends from the Outback by Phyllis Power, which told Indigenous tales about Australian native animals. It was published in 1958, two years before Ida died. Among the kookaburras, koalas and possums, and a pretty awful cover of painted-up Aborigines, there was not a fairy in sight. Juliet O'Connor. Post-war, we see a broadening of publishers having a wider clientele and therefore they are looking at different themes. So still fantasy in the 50s, but in the 60s you're going to get more of a liberated view of how children are raised. Ida's illustrations predicted the demise of fairyland because if we look at her illustrations chronologically, some of them show small boys stumbling into fairyland by chance. They peep and spy on fairies as they bathe. At first, in early illustrations, they sit entranced. They listen to fairy music. But in later pictures, it's the boy who plays the pipes, has the fairies dance for his pleasure. In essence, fairyland has been invaded in these pictures and its culture is permanently changed. So I see that as a metaphor for how women artists that are illustrators and commercial artists in the first half of the 20th century, how this space was invaded by the very artists, the painters of the Australian myth who had fought to keep these women out of their space. Her illustrations are often perceived as simply being pretty, pretty illustrations. I think they're much deeper than that. They're often emotionally quite intense. There's always the fairy or the child, or, and it's usually feminine. She might be floating above this very rocky landscape or a very scary deep sea, but there's never any fear. It's as though the, the projection of the feminine in Ida's drawings is very, very powerful. That is just such a magical picture. It's uh, entitled, She Flew Through the Window with Gumpkin Close Behind. She's a fairy and she's flying through the night sky with her wand as her light. And the, there's a beautiful full moon, very yellow, is, has just risen and it's just coming up behind the trees. The overwhelming color of this is this gorgeous indigo blue. It's a very beautiful picture, I think. Nearer and nearer to the hollow, the fairies danced, circling round and round. Then they folded the children in a ring of fairies, and the dance went on. When people discover an artist like Ida Rental Outhwaite, they fall in love with her, and they fall in love with her world. I'd like to say she took me into her fairy world, but I don't recall that actually happening. She came into my world as a child. Ida's Road to Fairyland was produced by Kathy Pryor. The sound engineer was Melissa May. And many thanks to Joanna Selleck and composer Elena Katz-Chernan for the music in this program. I'm Rebecca Huntley, and this is The History Listen. 
But for a change, I'm not going to say goodbye. I'm going to give the last word to Ida Rental Althwaite's Little Green Road to Fairyland. Our fairy dreams like flowers unfold. And when the waken nevermore, we leave the land of gold. The door is only fairy size, and misty mortal eyes are blind. But if a child has shiny eyes, the door is clear to find.